Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Rob Sheffield and Andy Green, and we're going to talk about the White Album. There is a monumental reissue of the White Album out with a remix and like something like 87 bonus tracks, which are for once super essential and interesting. Maybe not every single one is super essential, but it's a really cool box set. What I wanted to start out talking about is something I haven't addressed with Rob off the air yet, but it's Andy and I were talking about this. So Giles Martin is uh, the son of George Martin, of course, the Beatles' longtime producer, and he's kind of in charge of all these reissues. And one of the things he's doing is remixing the albums. I really like the Sgt. Pepper remix. I think it fixed some things that were, you know, th- that were quirky and kind of interfered with your modern hearing of the album, the, the odd stereo placement and stuff, although I certainly would not th- want the original mix, you know, vanished from the earth. But I started to get a little bit uneasy personally with the White Album remixes. I would compare it to, not exactly, but, you know, so George Lucas did special editions of Star Wars and started changing it, you know. And <laughs> but he you, filmed new stuff. Which That's you, a crazy comparison. Well, yes. It's, it's As you said, it's a little, obviously it's not a direct apple to apple. So you're saying so to speak. this is the, the Greedo draws first version yeah, of the I'm, White I'm Album? I'm just a tiny bit, which is, it's two things. It, what he does is amazing. It definitely makes it sound more modern. And that's good and it's worrisome to me and what, what Giles said and, and I'm sure you, you can speak to this in a minute he said in an interview today with Variety that he's uh, he's not worried about guys who are going to be A-being it and have been listening to it for 30 years this is for young kids who've never heard the Beatles before which is all well and good but it concerns me he, he talked about wanting you know Blackbird to stand up against an Ed Sheeran track that if to sound just as modern as an Ed Sheeran track and to me that's where you get into special edition territory because the other thing George did was of course he 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 scrubbed the film of of you know its grain and, and made everything look more modern and it's just it's fine but what if what if over the years the original mixes get sort of like shoved down in the streaming services and this sort of revamped history takes over the real history and which to me doesn't have the same emotional punch sometimes. Rob, what do you think? I'm not sure that any of this bothers you at all. No, it doesn't bother me at all. First, I take his comments in variety with a grain of salt uh, and and I just go with what he's actually doing. What, What Giles always says is he's just trying to get the sound of the edition to be more like the sound of the original tapes. And at as he says, to put this on a, a piece of vinyl in 1968 required all sorts of levels of compression. His analogy is always in Instagram filters, and that all he's trying to do is take the filters off. That to, to fit this onto a stereo mix of an album in 1968, you had to put all these filters on it. He's just removing the filters. So he's not adding anything that isn't there, and he's not changing the balance of the instruments. It's, it's, you know, it's just a thing where he's, he's removing some of the, the filters. I bought that until this one <laughs> that was i i until this yeah until until the white album one i bought that with sergeant peppers for this one and it's just this is something just worth talking about i mean I, I think it's it's it hits certain people differently this one and he did say that he at one point he polished it to, to the point where even he thought it was too polished that it sounded like steely dan specifically is, is what he said not I, I assume literally steely dan but just as far as the the sonic clarity of a steely dan record and so he pulled it back so he's aware of this issue I guess there were a few times I was listening to it and I, I just felt like the that it was somehow interfering with my emotions 
attached to it, as Jimmy Ivan would say. It's all about the emotion, and somehow it's just, but, you know, it's hard to say. It's, and I think, well, Andy, what do you think? Well, I think that you could be attached to a flawed version of it that's been floating around for a long time, but wasn't their actual hope of what it would sound like, and it wasn't how the tape sounded, as Rob said. Well, the the tapes, it's, it's just weird about what the tapes sounded like, because inevitably what the tapes sounded like is you're always going to be mixing it. You can never hear a, a, a multi-track, even a, a mix, without some degree of of interference. So the mi- it's just it's just complicated. I think he may intend that, but inevitably there's going to be some alteration, and it's just actually the question of whether I think it becomes a question of opinion whether the listener feels that he fully just recaptured what he what was originally there or altered it, and I guess it just becomes opinion. I mean, I will say something like Helter Skelter, you do feel the impact of it a little bit more and it does sound for example more like nirvana to me i suddenly was like this is nirvana <laughs> like like literally and that it's possible that that's a case where sort of making it sound a bit more modern in the mix might eat, might add the reception of it add to the reception of it because it's great because yeah. helter skelter is one of the songs paul played with with Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl at the uh, Sandy Benefit, no, yeah. maybe they just used that track for this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean it's literally we, we, Nirvana. We've heard Nirvana yeah, play yeah, Helter Skelter yeah. with Paul, so. but, but you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, to me, it, it's funny. I, in, I interviewed Ringo Starr the other day, and it was funny to hear Ringo talk about how much he loves the new version of the White Album, just because you can hear his drums so loud. And Long, 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 for instance, a song that was really like bizarrely muffled on the original mix. Uh, very mischievous in terms of volume and mastering on on previous versions of the record, and that long, long, long now sounds basically the way it always should have sounded. Well, let's hear Helter Skelter first. When I get to the bottom, I go back to the top of the slide. Where I stop and I turn and I go for a ride till I get to the bottom and I see you again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for me. I will say that's the number one most effective remix, and it, to me, it's it's pretty different. It, it hits it hits harder. And then let's hear it along, along, along if we can. It's been a so it really may be a track by track thing. And again, I mean, it's it's also it, it is ultimately a bit of a reinterpretation just I think inevitably and I don't think that's bad either I think it's just more whether in some cases it, it, it might some people might like other some tracks better than ever but I mean that said I really enjoy some of these I mean like Beatles Rock Band was the ultimate example of like a deconstruction and an interpretation and I absolutely stone cold love that so there's room for, for that as well but I guess in general, I prefer a, a really good remaster like they did in 2009 that sticks with the original mix. But, you know. What, all right, uh, but they mark this as the 2018 mix. Yeah. And then this will hopefully always this will this will hopefully always be labeled as its own thing. And the, and the old one will be there and the 09 version. It's just different ways to experience it, I'd argue. Well, the 09 version is, is just a remaster. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. But it still sounds different. It does. So, I mean, in general... Rob, you wrote a, a great book that we've talked about before. Uh, it is, it's Dreaming the Beatles, right? Yes. And it's quite essential for all Beatles fans. But it, where do you see the White Album in the Beatles canon? And how does this massive reissue change the way you see the White Album in the Beatles canon? Well, the, the White Album, it's, it's one of a kind in 
it, it doesn't sound like any of their other records. It doesn't sound like anybody else's records. Their guitar playing was really good. Their acoustic guitar playing was really good. So all these songs have a different sort of just sound from anything else they ever did. And that they spent five months making it. And of course, the legend that they kept telling in the 70s was about how miserable it was to make. And of course, everybody knows Ringo quit the band for two weeks. You know, that's a sign of how desperate things got. George Martin eventually bailed on the sessions. But uh, to me, the the real sort of shocking revelation about listening to uh, the new version, especially with all the, the new extras, there's, you know, four discs of est- extras, including the the legendary Esher demos, which have never been released before. And just to hear uh, just the camaraderie and how much fun they're having it as a band, trying all these different approaches, to me, really kind of forces me to change. I, I think it it changes the way we think about the White Album. There was a lot more going on emotionally and, and creatively between them than, than we thought up to now. That's one of the things that Giles Martin said, is that he had to reevaluate the whole idea of this as each Beatle making their own solo album and then jamming it together for a White Album, because it, it, you can hear that that's not the case on, on the, yeah. the Easter demos, which I was pleased to learn 10 minutes ago from Rob is not Esther, as I always thought. And I also learned from Rob that Esher is the, it's the name of the town that George Harrison's cottage was in. Is that correct? Yeah. George's bungalow, which is called Kin Fonz. And uh, they got back from India and they all got together at, at the end of May and uh, George had a new uh, uh, home taping machine, Reel to Reel, and they just did demos of their songs, the songs that they wrote while they were in India. And uh, it's the only time in their entire career that they demoed songs before going into the studio. So it was a totally different approach. And the Easter demos, I've always heard them on, on crummy sounding bootlegs. It's just phenomenal hearing them just in, in their pristine state. Yeah, I was thinking a but the basement tapes by Dylan as I was listening to them, which is a very similar time period. It was it was a about a few months earlier, obviously, or about a but a year. But just to hear them in the raw form in someone's house with with amateur taping system is just incredible. I wish that there were more Beatles things where you could hear the songs in the raw form. You listen to to, to George's song "Not Guilty" on the Easter demos, which of course is the song that famously went through 102 takes and didn't make the album. And you listen to him play it at the Easter demos; it sounds perfect. It sounds finished. It sounds good to go. They could have just put that demo version on the album instead of Piggies, for sure. <laughs> it, it, and yet, it, they had a hundred more takes to go without anything to show for it. Not Guilty being famously a song where George seems to be addressing the situation within the Beatles. Do you agree with that interpretation? I, I, I certainly think that that certainly seems to be the mood of the song. The part when he's literally like, fuck you, Paul, I thought was a, a big... <laughs> oh, wait, okay, no, not exactly. But I mean, it backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah but, <laughs> but what makes you think that the song is about the uh, Beatles? Guilty. Well, it's, it, you know, George songs, he tends to be in a, in a somewhat grumpy mood. To George, that was the sort of spiritual state that you go into to write a song. You imagine you're in a grumpy mood and a song just follows. So even though even when George was having a totally, you know, by all accounts, George in 1966 was having an extremely fun life, but he was still writing songs like Love You Too, where he's, you know, really drony and bummed out. That 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 was his songwriting muse. He was the one Beatle who decided it was a good idea to complain about his taxes on record, which <laughs> yeah. which, which which I always say were extremely yeah, high. They were like to, 98%. To, to be fair, they were 98%. But he doesn't even know how taxes work. You don't tax the street in order to pay for your car. It's the other way around. Yeah, yeah. You drive, you drive, they tax your car so they can pay for the street. 
dudes yeah. from the National Review and stuff are always making lists of the top hundred conservative rock songs of all time, and that's always number one. No, it <laughs> is number two. Always. Okay. They do won't get fooled again. Yeah, it's always their winner. Oof. <laughs> George also has that line: uh, "I'm not here for the rest. I'm not trying to steal your vest," which is just like I gave up on something to rhyme with rest. I, I think unless there's some there's some vest situation that, that, I'm, that George, I'm missing. Yeah. George was really he was he was a little slack with the rhymes always. It's you know <laughs> like when you listen to a song as great as "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" and you think, "Wow, this song went through." All these painstaking revisions, all these different versions, and they still kept the line, I look at the floor and I see it needs sweeping. Yeah. Like That's clearly a guy who's committed to keep the filler line at all costs. <laughs> it has a higher truth that if you go back and rewrite it, you're losing some, some authenticity. See, everybody listening just kind of let that line slide past them, including me. I just let it go, and now you have to bring it up and now ruin the song it's for beautiful. everyone for all time. Yeah. And yeah. like a lot of stuff in the White Album, it's never sounded better to me. Uh, the the 5.1 surround sound mix is fantastic. The new stereo mix is fantastic. I always love the mono mix. People always complain about the mono mix. I love it. Um, Let's hear Not Guilty, by the way, before we get away too far from the, that. The Esher version. The Esher version. I think we have that running. Not guilty Of getting in your way While you're trying to steal the day but then he finished it 10 years later, right, Rob? Yeah, he put it on uh, his 1979 solo album. You have to imagine, he was, it was probably just so much like, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder from playing the song a hundred times with the Beatles and still getting it cut from the album. It took years for him to be able to go back to it. That was the same time period where he made Here Comes the Moon. Right? Yes, which is a phenomenal <laughs> song. Here Comes the Moon is every same album as Here Comes the Moon. Every bit as good as Here Comes the Sun. Really? Yes. That's a great Lost George song. We we could, you know, George is in the it, 70s was, was really like, yeah. So what else jumped out from the uh, the Easter demos for you? Well, there's, it's, it's funny. We were talking about the Beatles and, and the revelation that they were actually having fun a lot of the time they were making the White Album. There's this amazing version of Good Night that until now yes. was totally unknown, unrumored, unbootlegged. It just, it seems nobody knew this existed. And it, it was funny because when the first time Giles Martin played it to me this summer, I went out to Abbey Road to hear these White Album things and he played it for me. And I was sitting there in shock and he says, yeah, you listen to them sing together and you say, this is the White Album? These guys are so together. And it's just absolutely beautiful. All four of them singing, which is a relatively rare occurrence. Yeah, Rob wrote a great piece you should check out on RollingStone.com about Good Night and uh, the, what we learn about it from this album. But I, I mean, I will just tell, uh, I, I'm not into like personal how I first heard the song stories, but I will tell this one, which is, uh, and it, it, in a way, it's, it's, it reveals that I didn't actually listen to the White Album until very late in life. So I was like 19 years old, because I didn't get into a big Beatles phase until pretty late. And I, 19 years old, I'm listening to the White Album, and I think I was like lying in bed, like sort of on a liminal phase between taking a nap in the afternoon. That's the kind of thing you could do in the middle of the day when you're 19 years old. And I got to good night, and I would sort of fallen asleep. And I'm woken up by this celestial, ridiculous celestial thing of choir that they put on good night. And until that moment, I did not know that Goodnight was a Beatles song. Goodnight was a lullaby that my mom sang me when I was a little kid. Aww. And so I heard it and I thought like probably in my falling asleep, I thought maybe I died, you know, <laughs> because these like the <laughs> a choir of angels was singing. That is probably the most phenomenal uh, introduction to a Beatles song ever. That said, that version is not, it's Ringo singing. As you wrote, It John was uncomfortable with the tenderness 
of him singing this lullaby and of being recorded singing it. He didn't even really want to sing it in front of the other guys, right? You were saying, it. yeah, he 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 just you know he ran it through to teach it to Ringo, but then he didn't even want that version to be recorded. There's there's no versions of it that exist, but it's a. Uh, it's the version that's uh, take five and take ten. It's it's the that's vocals right. okay. from take ten and the guitar from that's take right. five. That's right. And John's playing in this finger picking style that he learned in India that all the Beatles picked up from Donovan. I, I normally I always like I always disbelieve on principle when anybody claims they taught the Beatles a trick. However, in this case, I will give Donovan this. Uh, a man who is, you know, obviously very fond of telling stories about his vast influence on other musicians, but in this case, no, it's it's true. Like yeah. Donovan taught them this this London folky finger picking technique that had such a huge impact on all their guitar playing because they had nothing else to do in India for fun except play guitar. So Julia is a song that has that pattern. I'm trying to remember what else. Dear Prudence. Yeah, yeah. So happiness is warm gun a little bit. But here is Lennon applying it to Good Night, which you know I don't think even has a guitar on the finished recording, no. probably. It's time to say goodnight. That's really beautiful. So you're listening to Rolling Stone music now. That was the Beatles singing goodnight in a version that the world never heard until like last week. And we're talking about the White Album, and we'll be right back with more. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, Walmart, Nike, Wine.com, Samsung, Lenovo, Sephora, and more and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. When we left off, we were talking about the unearthed new version of Good Night. Rob was moved by it because he wrote a, a whole awesome essay about it. But it's a little dark, but I was saying it, given the, our current times, I feel like it, there's a little bit of good night. Now it's time to die. We've come back from the dead to wish you farewell to it. That, that just really freaks me out. And as Rob was saying, it's just unusual to hear all of them singing. But for all of them singing on, on that and that no one's ever heard it, it just hits you like a sledgehammer, I think. I don't know. Yeah, in, ter- in terms of like the you know the different approaches to songs, this is this is the one where the version that didn't make the album. I'm wondering, you know, at least sometimes I've I've always loved the version on the album with the orchestra and the harp and the choir and all the goop. But this is this is the one where I I was like, wow, I wish they could have found a way to keep this one. We were saying, and and you wrote a little bit about how, that that it is it's. Lennon's self-consciousness is interesting here and the the beauty of the album arrangement is a sort of self-mocking 
beauty. He was mocking the beauty of what he himself, or the beauty inherent in what he himself created. It was just the, the Lenin sort of like self-loathing and, and self-consciousness is a is a tremendous is an interesting thing. Yeah. Is it is it true that when when the whole Manson Helter Skelter thing came out, that Lenin said, "Make sure that everyone knows that's a Paul song." Lennon for some reason he really did not like Helter Skelter and always went out of his way to say bitchy things about it it's weird that he couldn't he couldn't even give Paul a compliment on this one that's interesting is it because he felt that he was encroaching on Lennon-esque territory yeah I suppose it's a song that's a a bit more aggressive than the usual Paul stuff a bit more experimental and John didn't like that but what's so cool on the set is to hear the 13 minute version of it that I've been reading about for years and years and years I had never heard the damn thing because it had never been out there so it was it was amazing to finally hear that long version of it. It's it's very Sabbathy, like yes. and 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 around the time that Sabbath were Which, just yeah, like it's really kind of crazy to think of the timeline of what if people had heard this in 1968. What else jumped out at you in this set in general? The Esher demos are always again just hearing them, just the way that it it has the Beatles. They they've come back from India. They have no idea that they're going to spend five months in the studio making each other miserable. <laughs> And, you know, like, and, and storming out on each other and, and insulting each other's songs. At this point, they're having fun. They're sitting around George's living room. And just to hear them share, for instance, Julia, the Easter demo of that is incredibly moving. Just because it's, you know, on the album, it's such a solitary John song. It's the only Beatles song that's just John, none of the others. And it's just him and his acoustic guitar. And the version on the Easter demos, you you know, you can hear that Paul is in the room and John is singing it. And for some reason, that kind of forces me to reevaluate my whole life up to this point. My entire <laughs> worldview is totally shaken by the fact that John was willing to sing this song with Paul in the room. Mm. Let's hear that if we can. Hello, Paul. <laughs> okay. Maybe you turn the level of this Just to reach you, Andy, I'm, I was just thinking, Rob, so these demos proved that they had the songs. They were really fleshed out. They were gorgeous. They, they sounded finished almost. And so why did it take five torturous months to get them on tape? I don't quite understand why it was so difficult for them. It's really wild. They, they really had a lot of ambitions for what they wanted to do as a band, uh, as opposed to Sgt. Pepper, and to some extent, Abbey Road, where they were putting pieces together, they wanted to do this one at, as a band. But it's weird that, like you said, like they had the songs and and they had the enthusiasm, which would certainly come and go during the five months they spent on the White Album. It's it's wild to think that they could have just gone into the studio and just banged this out, you know, in a week, the way they used to make records. You know, they made Rubber Soul in a month. They just, you know, locked themselves up and played till they had an album. They they could have done this one that way. And how do we square the whole idea that it was them splitting apart and make with this new collaboration we know about? Is it they did write more on their own than previous albums? I think that's what still stands true. Is that it? Yeah, but they also they were in physical proximity in, in India when they were writing songs. They were often, you know, that was kind of the last time in their lives that they were near each other just geographically while they were writing songs. And so they were writing separately, but they were still very much writing to impress each other and, and to show off for each other and, and and definitely trying to top each other. So you have the thing of, you know, Paul writing, you know, really great, you know, faux John songs like Helter Skelter and, and John writing really great faux Paul songs like 
like Good Night. But a song like, you know, they, they had so many songs coming back from India and they had so much enthusiasm. It's it's really strange, like you were saying, Andy, that, that, that it changed so much while they were making the album. There is other stuff that wouldn't come out till the future I, I was it's it's really freaky to hear me and Mr. Mustard and, and I think Pauline Pam yeah. Yeah. as well on there and you're just like whoa here we go like across the universe and across the universe but the White Album is a classic double album in the sense that there are songs that would never have made a single album uh, is there anything that you would leave off the White Album if it were up to you well I get everybody loves playing the game of you know if it were if they had to make it a single disc white album. What are the fourteen songs you would keep? Honestly, with the new version, I'm forced to, you know, to think of it in another way. Why wasn't this a triple album? And what would a triple album, you know, white album? It would have had, you know, Paul singing "Junk," which is so fantastic on the Easter demos. He later did it on his solo album, but the Easter version is so great. For people who didn't realize why there's a song called Sing Along Junk and a <laughs> solo album, it, you know, of course, how could they not know that that was the song Junk, but with the lead vocal removed, uh, which is a, a fascinating move on the part of Paul. Let's hear the version that is not Sing Along Junk, non-Sing Along Junk. And then there's also Sour Milk Sea, which... Phenomenal song. Amazing George song that, that you know, to- totally, like, it definitely should have made the White Album rather, you know, we can all pick a few minor White Album tracks, but Sour Milk Sea is a great hun- song. I-, I would gladly sub that for Honey Pie, personally. Honey Pie, I don't like, but Bungalow Bill, like these, I would much rather 86, but Sour Milk Sea is a phenomenal song. They gave it to their old Liverpool pal Jackie Lomax, who had a top 10 hit with it, but it's, it's weirdly unknown. Let's hear the Beatles Easter demo of Sour Milk Sea. If your life's not right, doesn't satisfy you. Don't get the breaks like some of us do. It is. It's a very, very George song. It's funny that anyone else ever sang that. Now that I hear George singing it, yeah, you would have to imagine yourself as you know just being George at his bitchiest. You know, <laughs> like it's funny that it's it, it's almost like it was too cheerful a George song to make the album because it, it doesn't complain quite enough about about the rest of D- the. Human despite race. the image of being in a sour milk sea, which <laughs> yes. is just such a, it's just which is I think how George saw the physical world. And really, and I, actually, I think he, that actually might be true. Then there's Child of Nature, which I think became Jealous Guy, right? That's yeah. that's it's better, I think, as Jealous Guy. What do you think? I think it's better as Jealous Guy. But one of the things about John, he didn't he didn't waste a lot of stuff. He he kept repurposing outtakes for you know well into his solo career, and and for something like Child of Nature, obviously putting Child of Nature and Paul has Mother Nature's son. You know, they're both like you know responses to being like out in the wild in the countryside in India and being all pastoral. And there kind of wasn't room for both of them in, in the just, album. It's but. just too much nature, isn't it? Too, <laughs> too much nature, too much bloody nature. But but Jealous Guy is such a, you know, I mean, I think we can all agree Jealous Guy is what that song was always meant to be. Mm. And it's also like Lennon singing Jealous Guy is much more appropriate than him singing Child of Nature, let's face yes. it. Let's, but let's hear Child of Nature if we can. On the road to Rishikesh 
I, I'm just not convinced by John Lennon singing "I'm Just a Child of Nature." It's like, no, you're not. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. like <laughs> but like, pa- Paul wasn't a Mother Nature's son at this point either. Paul, no, Paul was the Beatle who lived actually in London. He right. was the only one at this point. Paul had spent his entire life in cities up to this point. Nobody, <laughs> nobody would have predicted that he would have like you know not just like moved to a farm. All rock stars did that at some point, but he actually liked living on a farm. It is interesting and, and vaguely hilarious that they you know they spend how long were they in india like not super long different like right. you know, paul was was about uh, four weeks ringo was about 10 di- 10 days <laughs> he didn't like the food he did not like the food george and john were there for for months like three or four months Fair enough. I feel like Paul's one month, like, which is essentially summer camp, all of a sudden he's Mother Nature's son is pretty funny when you think about it. You know, it's, what's the deal with what's the new Mary Jane? I'm surprised they even demoed that song. Barely a song at all. Yeah, it was a song that was basically unknown till the anthology series. And uh, I've always had a soft spot for what's the new Mary Jane. It's a point where, you know, John was going to get one totally wacko, long, borderline unlistenable track on the album. He couldn't have both Revolution 9 and What's the New Mary Jane. I really like What's the New Mary Jane. I think it's kind of a beautiful melody. The only problem is it repeats about 80 or 90 times. Well, that's sort of what I'm saying. The fact that he... I couldn't make it all the way through the demo, I have to admit. What a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. What a shame Mary Jane, what a shame Mary Jane had a pain at the party. The Beatles used the same skill that allowed them to make some of the most beautiful harmonies known to man to find the single most annoying harmony <laughs> that you could possibly find. I'm not sure what that interval is, but I think, it, you know, it's like, because sometimes it's a third, sometimes it's a fifth. I think feel like there's about a seven and three quarters or something. It's just between all human notes. It, and, it's, and then it's John hideous. said, wait a minute, lads, I found an even more unbearable melody. It's called <laughs> Bungalow Bill. <laughs> Let's do it now. Let's have Ringo be the loudest beetle on it. See, here's the thing. I kind of like Bungalow Bell. Ugh, yeah, horrible. that's a hot take, Brian. I kind of like Bungalow Bill. What are you going to do? I like it. I'm obsessed with the very commonly known fact that the flamenco guitar at the beginning was was played, I think because it, it augurs so much for the recording industry. It's one of the first bits of music played by pressing a single button on a record because it was like a preset or whatever. Yeah, on a Mellotron. On a Mellotron. Not a whatever. It was not a preset. It's all tape loops. But it was, it was a tape loop played by God knows who at God knows what point. It was a preset button. It was yeah. definitely like a... You know, in terms of, you know, using the Mellotron in a way that would be, you know, very much, you know, expanded as as bands got more into it. But yeah, it's uh, it's funny that I guess like a lot of people and the thing is like when you grow up with the vinyl white album, you know, where the songs all run together. So I always know Bungalow Bill from the last 10 or 20 seconds that you'd get when you're trying to move the needle ahead to While My Guitar Gently Weeps, which is one of the greatest songs on the record. And you kind of can't have the intro of While My Guitar Gently Weeps without getting a little bit of the end of Bungalow Bill, <laughs> much to my pain and chagrin over the years. Did Isher Bungalow Bill uh, help you at all there? Did it warm yeah, you? It sounds It sounds like, you know, it, you know as, as Jal said, they're singing around a campfire and they're saying, I've got this song. What songs have you got? And that sort of collaborative, you know, just let's throw a song out there sort of spirit that really infuses the whole White Album. So listening to the Easter Demos version definitely warms me to it. Hey, Bungalow Bill, what did you kill? Bungalow Bill, hey, Bungalow Bill, what did you kill? Bungalow Bill. You mentioned a few that are not your favorites. What are your other not favorites on the album? You know, I realize I'm wrong at this, especially since, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Paul fanatic. Paul fanatics tend to love I Will. 
for some reason, I've never liked that song, mm. and I don't get why. I just do not like I Will. It's never done much for me. Anything else? On that? Andy, what, yeah. what what are your highs and lows? God, I love Helter Skelter. I like Obla D. I know that song. It's always hated. It's always been like a personal favorite of mine. There's something about that song I love. Oh, well, that brings up... So in the Esher demo... It's pretty fast when they play it. It's rocking. Yeah. So, yes. so here's so uh, you know one of uh, Rob is very fond of the anecdote as are many people that that Lennon was tripping on acid and came back. This is how you bloody play this song. Quite possible that's all bullshit because the, no. the song was fast from the beginning. It, it was, no, it's not bullshit. If you, if you listen right, to that right, outtake okay. from the album, right. you can hear that you know the version they were doing in the studio was very smooth. It, it really needed John it was to definitely well, slower, and the intro on the piano was key that John did. Dun, 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 Fair dun, enough. Dun, dun. It, it's not all bullshit, but we'll say it wasn't like. It was inherent in the song. The possibility was inherent from the beginning of playing it fast. It wasn't like it was always some lugubrious thing that Lennon fully rescued. It's more that he had the insight that he was paying attention from the beginning and wanted to return it to something more like that. I guess well, that's more. And, and yeah, I guess yeah. that's something that comes across when you listen to the extras as well, like that they're contributing so much to each other's songs, that they're coming up with ideas, that they're, you know, everybody's just serving the song and trying to make everybody's songs better, which you definitely hear in the Escher, Escher demos. It's, it's still hard for me to learn <laughs> that this is, you know, we've been like all Americans pronouncing it wrong my whole life. But you hear that they're really into each other's songs and into making them better. It's really funny to hear, you know, Honey Pie or, or something like that in the Escher version or, or, or Bungalow Bill where they're really like, let's make this song as good as it can be. <laughs> yeah. Even if there's a very firm ceiling on how good it can ever be. <laughs> well, we have the Escher Obadi Obada ready, so let's hear that That's real great. You know, the sonic quality of the Isher stuff, whatever it was, was it wasn't some, you know, obviously it wouldn't have been a cassette by, back then, but it was a reel-to-reel a -reel that actually sounds fantastic. They were overloading the tape and hitting in the, it's yeah. just, it just, it, says, it just, I mean, this is why people like Neil Young say that things devolve because you would never get that fat compression from recording on GarageBand or something. It's just, it was just basic equipment, but it's, it just sounds amazing. And these were just sitting in a trunk, like, you know, under... In, under piles of other suitcases and trunks and luggage just in George's attic all these years. Like, Olivia just pulled it out for this version, and they've, you know... They've, but the fans somehow, they got their hands on them years ago, right? They were bootleg. Much lower yeah. quality, though. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, you know, the Easter demos, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing these cleaned up a little because I, you know, I, I know the bootleg versions. But I realized that just hearing them in this form is like a totally different experience because you hear just the intimate, like you said, like you hear what just what a great recording it is. In general, one of the things about the White Album to me is it's where you hear kind of the Beatles stepping into a vein of kind of, it's hard to say this correctly, but sort of a just like basically like modern rock. Like when you listen to it, not not like the radio format, but just, and, and I don't mean modern like in 2018 because God knows what that means, but it's just sort of like, it's suddenly where it's like you can hear tracks that could be on a Radiohead album. A really Radiohead moment is, is the last couple minutes of Revolution 1 in the 10 and a half minute version. And it's funny, it's a famous story, and I'd always heard this story. Uh, you know, the first day of recording, Yoko shows up, the other Beatles are surprised to, to see her, and she shows up on on the studio floor and actually joins the band when they're playing Revolution 1. And I'd heard that story so many times is, uh, this is the beginning of the end, this is where it all starts to fall apart. They're having so much fun, especially in, in the final minute or so of that jam. Yoko's doing these electronic sound effects. You know, Paul is rocking out. They're rocking out together. 
Wait, what instrument was she doing electronic sound effects on? Um, it it wasn't like a keyboard, but it was like a little like electronic feedback gadget. I'm not oh, sure exactly. Oh, oh my what it god! Was, Do you know? I like think I saw. Synth- Paul, I think I saw Paul playing with that when I was in. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. It was in. Uh, he still has all these things, and when I when I got to be in Abbey Road with him, it had a uh, joystick, not a keyboard. Oh god! I think I think I saw yeah. I think I saw Paul McCartney playing with that. Personally, yeah, which is which is insane. But it, he wasn't like, oh, by the way, Yoko played this. I'm, I'm just take a revolution. But no, I 100% saw him messing with that. That's wild, man. Yeah, when that, I spoke with Greg Kirsten about the McCartney album, he was talking to me about this device that that Paul has had for over 50 years that he still uses. Wow, that's that's really cool. Yeah, well, basically, when I did my McCartney cover story, it was supposed to be about his Jazz Standards album, but then he decided a, a good scene for the story about the Jazz Standards album would be him recording uh, stuff for his next album. So it was all very confusing, but very exciting. And I also got to see him, you know, play. I sat in the sat in the the, the main Abbey Road studio where the Beatles recorded and, and watched him just play bass in the empty room for half an hour, which is the most interesting combination of like unbelievably mind blowing, life changing experience and like ever so slightly boring that you ever experienced because it's just a, a um, <laughs> it's, it is just all you could hear where it was bass for half an hour which even if it's Paul McCartney at at around minute 25 some part of you doesn't want to admit that it's like ever so slightly dull just on some level while also being like you want to capture every minute of it so it's just anyway but I also hear what a rhythm monster is that that version of of Revolution 1 it's funny because you know they use the first four and a half minutes of it on the album and just when the, the point where the album version fades out you know the band was just starting to groove and they stretched this groove out and you know, John is screaming and Yoko is doing her synth noises and Paul is singing Love Me Do in the background. And it's just like this completely, they're all having so much fun. And I thought, well, this completely ruins my whole narrative of the White Album. It just shatters all our cliches about it. We're getting to know it all over again. And it's also like, I I think it brings to life this idea that it's just, it's always more complicated than that because I'm sure all of the other narratives are essentially true. I mean, Ringo did leave. George Martin did leave. They There was all this resentment. There were problems. The band was going to break up soon. And yet, even, it's just sort of like, even in a marriage that's, that's about to end, I'm sure people have great days. So it's just life cannot be captured in these simple little narratives. No, I just think it shows that when in the studio that as soon as that light turned red that they were professionals and they worked together and they still enjoyed it. it that was their safe space in a, in a lot of ways. Andy, you were saying that uh, we should turn our attention in our last couple of minutes to the stuff that's left in the vault. You got Ringo to, to talk about some of this stuff. Yeah, and I think he thinks they're going to do Abbey Road next, which would make a lot of sense, but... The but that was just made in a few weeks, so I don't think there's much there. But Paul said recently they're finally going to do Let It Be, that the movie will be re-released with a new edit because he hates the old edit. So there'll be a new version of that movie. But the idea is that they would. he doesn't like the fact that it showed all the tension in the band. Yes, and that he's cast as the bad guy. He, he hates that. So he's gonna be, I was saying during the break, are they going to put Jar Jar Binks into that version? Yes. Misa, think you treat George Harrison very nicely. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems kind of crazy. It, that seems like rewriting history. But, but obviously, that's an incredible story. Let It Be is an obvious, incredible sore yeah. point for Paul McCartney. Yeah. And what's incredible is they have like 50 hours of footage of them recording the damn thing that they've been sitting on for a thousand years. The audio... That's leaked out, but the film, that's never been seen, right, Rob? Yeah. Um, it, so a lot of this stuff, it, you know, the potential for new stuff, if he wants to show, you know, there's the audio clip where 
George is like, yeah, I've got this new song, guys. Like, And he starts like trying to play All Things Must Pass. And John does not even want to hear this, so he just starts playing a Chuck Berry song. And that's when George gets up and walks out, and John says, well, if he's not back by Tuesday, we'll replace him with Eric Clapton. <laughs> in the, George, George, George has been in the band for 10 years, and this is still how they treat him. <laughs> no, all things must pass indeed. In the special edition, the, the CGI Beatles then record some, it's going to take a lot of work, but there's going to be a, a Beatles version of All Things Must Pass. It, it's, it's, the album is then called All Things Must Pass, and the Beatles stay together. It's just great. It's really good. Paul's version is really wonderful. Anyway, this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We were talking about the Beatles White Album reissue with Rob Sheffield and Andy Green. We could probably talk a whole lot more about it. But we'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. I read them all. There's been a couple of nice ones recently that I really appreciate. Also, the guy who said our biopics conversation was pretentious, which I also appreciate. And we will see you next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.